The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. We begin our report with the recognition that we are in extraordinary times. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has initiated extraordinary measures in order to keep the United States from defaulting on its obligations now that the country has officially hit the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. The Treasury Department has already started taking steps to delay a default. Right now, that means not investing in some federal retirement funds, but placing IOUs in those accounts that will be paid off later when the situation is resolved. Down the line, around June, the Treasury Secretary estimates, it could mean delaying Social Security checks, delaying tax refunds, furloughing government employees, and even closing national parks and museums. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell spoke about the work that will need to get done to keep calamity at bay. I think the important thing to remember is that America must never default on its debt. It never has and never will. But we'll end up in some kind of negotiation with the administration. What the Secretary of the Treasury said today, she's beginning to use what they call extraordinary measures. I think this will have to be dealt with sometime in the first half of 2023. For the first time in more than 60 years, China's population has fallen. This could indicate the possible start of a long-term decline. Beijing's National Bureau of Statistics said the population decreased by 850,000 people to 1.4 billion. The country also reported its lowest birth rate since official records began and its highest death rate in decades. China's one-child policy ended in 2015, but despite various incentives offered by the government, the growth rate has continued to fall. The job cuts in big tech are piling up. Microsoft said today it's laying off 10,000 employees. And Amazon today started a fresh round of job cuts in what's expected to become the largest workforce reduction in its 28-year history. It all follows recent workforce reductions by Twitter, Meta, Lyft, Salesforce, and other tech companies. More than 120,000 tech sector employees laid off in just the last year, coming during a period of slowing growth and fears of a possible recession on the horizon. That's what a sea change is. It's Mm -hmm. a complete transformation, not just a minor uh, cyclical fluctuation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, look, I think that the business world, the economic world, is not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy for companies with bad business models to stay in business, as it has been for the last 14 years. Right. So I think we go back to a period in which we have moderate interest rates. Mm -hmm. We have moderate availability of capital. We have a moderate default rate and so forth, uh, all of which will feel much less accommodative, I think, than the last 14 years. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. This week, the S&P 500 fell 1.5% when a negative retail sales figure was announced this Wednesday. The tug of war between the bulls for a soft landing and the bears for a hard landing will be the main story, I think, this year. J.P. Morgan's chief U.S. equity strategist, Devraco, said Friday that bad news has been good news for the stock market, but won't be much longer. The idea that the U.S. can avoid a hard recession has been growing as of late. A deceleration in the consumer price index readings last week and the producer price index reading this week has led estimates for the Fed to stop raising rates after maybe two more hikes and maybe each hike being only 25 basis points each this year. St. Louis Fed President Bullard, a non-voter, 
said he would prefer that the Fed stay on a more aggressive path, but that he thinks the possibility of a soft landing has improved. The Fed's Beige Book report was released this week as well. It didn't have a large emphasis on trading, but it gives us a glimpse of the economy based on the 12 Fed districts. Five reported modest growth, six reported no change or slight declines, and New York noted a significant decline due to weak manufacturing. Housing weakened in construction and new home sales across the districts. Employment grew slightly to moderately in most districts. And what I found interesting is that the report said employers are hesitant to lay off workers, even though demand has fallen for goods and services, given availability issues. While wage pressures persisted, five districts said this has eased somewhat for them. The S&P 500 has had a nice winning streak so far in January, post the ISM Services report. This Wednesday, things continue to look to be in favor of the bulls in a soft landing scenario when the lower producer prices index report was announced down half a percent for December in the headline number. But the retail sales report down 1.1% in December and the contraction in industrial production by 0.7% for December triggered some profit taking in U.S. stocks. Continuing with the economic reports here, Thursday, the unemployment claims hit a recent low around 190,000. For the bears to win the argument on a hard landing, this is one area that just hasn't shown uh, any kind of budge higher. And while building permits fell overall, single family starts grew 11.3% for the month. On Friday, existing home sales continue to decelerate Existing home sales are down 34% year over year for the December month. So no reprieve yet in the housing bear market. Some analysts I follow say this is the area to watch for the turn. Uh, one positive is that many homeowners with a low mortgage will find it hard to offer up their homes just to trade out and into a mortgage almost twice the cost. This is helping to keep the supply of houses low on the market, keeping months of supply low at about 2.9 months. In earnings this week, just a few highlights as we await the bulk of earnings releases over the next couple of weeks. Goldman Sachs fell 6.4% on earnings report Tuesday, missing on results and announcing increased provisions for credit losses. Morgan Stanley was up 5.8%, having missed earnings but surprised higher on revenues to help balance the losses in Goldman on the day. United Airlines delivered an upbeat earnings report and raised guidance unlike Delta last week. Despite the positive report, the stock finished down 4.6%. United said it expects capacity to return to 2019 levels and expects continued robust demand. Alcoa fell 7.4% on its earnings announcement Thursday as upward pressures on production costs and a sizable softening in aluminum prices over the quarter saw its EBITDA plunge 86% year over year and revenues fell 20%. On the plus side, if you're watching base metal prices, you'll note that many have been on the rise as of late. Finally, Friday's Netflix earnings announcement and Alphabet's plans to reduce its workforce 12,000 rolls helped the equities market finish on a positive note. Netflix was up 8.5% on net additions, showing a significant change in trend for the company. The company said it is seeing positive momentum in 12 countries using its ad-supported new tier. The tug-of-war over a soft versus hard landing can go either way at this point, and that's why you'll likely hear uh, it can go either way comments from analysts for the time being. There have been numerous tech layoffs announced, and some look at that as possibly the turning point for these stocks. 
But unless we see more widespread layoffs, a hard landing isn't coming. And we heard it in the Beige Book report that companies are hesitant to lay off. That's it for this week's wrap-up. There will be much more to discuss next week as earnings uh, get into the thick of it over the next couple of weeks for the earnings season. Up next, Gene Iger, this week's guest technician. In your book, you talk about this goal that they have of getting us to net zero policy would be almost the equivalent of mass murder. Explain that. I think it would be mass murder. And this is considered an offensive view, but net zero should be what is offensive because all I'm pointing out is its consequences. 80% of the world's energy is from fossil fuels. There's no near-term replacement. The world needs far more energy. So we have 3 billion people using less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. And then on top of that, energy is not some minor convenience. It's what I call an essential of human flourishing. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we're committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we were off to a good start at the beginning of the year, but markets have been pulling back this week. Is the end of a bear market rally or do things go up from here? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Gene Inger from the Inger Letter. Gene, it it seems like we get up close to 4,000. That seems to be a resistance for the S&P. Give me your thoughts here, given what you see in the charts. Well, hi, Jim. Thanks for inviting me to share my uh, market views, uh, which in all humble opinions, we have had uh, a negative view on the market since 2021. And it matters because of an unusual pattern. First of all, we were doing a lot of work uh, when COVID was first starting and in terms of warning people about it and the panic in the market, nailed the low for on March the 23rd of 2020 for one simple reason. The day before the Fed had said they would back the economy. I didn't fight the Fed. I'm not eating now either. I believe the Fed and, and that kicked the market off. And there was a lot of the firms on the street that remained skeptical, as you know, uh, during uh, 2020. And they came in late and pushing stocks up in the 21. Then came the uh, buybacks from a lot of the big mega tech stocks and others. And unknown to most people, but it's, it was a big point we were making on at our ingerletter.com comments every night. Uh, our big point we were making was that we saw in 2021, uh, you may have made the same point, the largest insider selling in history as everyone from Bezos to Gates, even Tim Cook, they were all selling millions of shares, which is still a small portion usually of what they own, and they took advantage of it. And basically, the uh, upward, and and this will relate to where we're at, if you don't mind me putting it this way, the upward action that we had 
stimulated by the buybacks. Shareholders didn't complain because the share prices went up, but it was really additional compensation to executives uh, and gave them an opportunity to sell into strength. And the reason I mentioned that is that people are debating whether we're going to have two years now of back-to-back bear markets. And I'm saying no, because this would be the third year, because I believe the market top was in 21, and it was artificially held up. That's the bifurcation that we're probably all aware of by all the smaller stocks, which got decimated. And we're coming down well before the S&P topped out. And then you came down and you've made uh, in the course of this year, I mean, this past year, what I call a complex erratic bottom, which has weak prospects of holding. That would be, if you looked at a chart, they would see, if I can verbally describe it, the low in uh, June and the low in October, and it almost looks like an inverse head and shoulders bottom, not top. And that makes the current shakeout these last couple of days in the market very important. When we began the past week, we described this market. First of all, we were nibbling for a trading basis in late uh, December, looking for a little bit of, of churn in the first couple of days of 2023, and then up, but only temporarily in an unsustainable move. Then last week, knowing that this week ended with uh, a January expiration, we looked for uh, stocks to move up and briefly take out the 4,000 level. We knew the VIX was down, which usually means look for the market to go the other way and so on. But we said, no, there's so many shorts that it's a crowded short side of the ledger and they're going to try to push this up just above the 4,000 level and then sell into it. They did. I wouldn't say that I expected it all to happen in 30 minutes, but it did. And there are reasons that that happened. That would have been on uh, uh, Wednesday morning. There were reasons it was up and down beyond wholesale prices, beyond the squeezing of profit margins at retail stocks and, and stores. Uh, it, 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 it was a little deeper than that. And it, it has to do uh, to some extent with what happened with the Bank of Japan. It has to do with China. And I think it has to do with, and nobody wants to talk about this, and presumably it won't happen, the Saudi Arabian threat made at Davos to start using the Chinese yuan uh, for trading in uh, oil instead of the dollar. And that, in theory, would undermine the dollar's position as global reserve currency. I think it's a blackmail because of weapons that they want and policy moves in the Middle East that the Saudis want. I don't trust them, quite frankly, uh, but I also don't believe that they're going to start using the one. And also because China wants a thawing with the United States, that would be problematic. But anyway, I don't want to get too much into the weeds. That's what I do in my service. But I think it's complex enough that we have a tendency to try to oversimplify things just based on the economy or just a quick look at the charts. And while the charts were saying that we were set up for a shakeout, I think what motivated this in the days immediately past is what I just discussed. Now, we can discuss how deep the shakeout can be and what can happen thereafter, if you would like. Okay, let let me go with another question here, because... Wall Street has been looking for this pivot. 
They, they love the liquidity juices that drive the markets up. So anytime you get an inflation report that the inflation is coming down, which it has been, they're saying, okay, you know, just any any moment uh, you take a look, they think that we're going to have a rally, the Fed's going to pivot, and I just don't know if that's the way this is going to be played out because you've got a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus that's coming in here, which I find highly inflationary. So what's your views Given what the Fed is doing, they're more likely to keep raising interest rates. That's going to hit housing. It's going to hit other elements of the economy. But I just don't think uh, the Fed is ready to pivot at this point. What's your view? Well, I agree with you, Jim, uh, but I will use a single word to describe it, oil. As goes oil, will go the uh, perception of inflation because oil impacts everything, including food prices including transportation of goods for construction. But I've been saying for months, same thing I think that you you are made a point of, uh, that being the infrastructure bill and all the spending that's going to hit. And that makes it uh, actually, it's almost as if Congress and the White House were juxtapositioned to what the Fed wants to do. Or do you, do you agree with, because the Fed tightening is then running, you know, yeah, it, it, they're they're in opposite uh, order now because the Fed is trying to slow the economy down to bring down inflation, and Congress is putting more money, adding more fuel to the fire. And I, I just, I think it makes the Fed's position difficult and is going to keep them on the tightening side. Uh, exactly, but I would point out that even the Fed voting members are a little bit split. Uh, on uh, on uh, Wednesday of, of this week that we're recording this, uh, you had Jim Bullard uh, sound a little bit more dovish than he has, St. Louis Fed. And then you had Esther George, uh, who sounded hawkish. So this uh, uh, sort of equilibrium among mem- voting members is still there. Personally, my suspicion is that what you will get is a slowing of the pace of hikes. Uh, I don't even think you'll do a half a point at the February meeting. Based on the data that we see, I'm thinking they do a quarter point for one or two meetings, which makes March rather interesting. The February meeting will be sort of a key because even if you don't, I don't think you'll have a pivot. I agree with you. Uh, But at the same time, you're going to see a slower rate as opposed to skipping it. Uh, But you may also see more of a reflection about data sensitivity and that maybe they hike a quarter point and then they say uh, future decisions will be based on the data. You'll recall they had just backed off from referring to data dependency in their position. So to me, I, I think they maybe go in February and I think what's the next meeting, March or April, they'll go yes. another quarter of a point. So they're slowing it down, but they're still raising it. Well, they are. But I would point out if you're having 5% more or less uh, rates in, in the real world, not just the funds world, uh, that five to six percent is by at least my generation is a normal level. We were too low for too long. And that was part of my bearish forecast that the Fed was tightening too late and would go too too high. And I think that's what we have to deal with. And that is basically your conventional bearish argument uh, for the market. It may be valid. It has been valid up to now. And I think a lot of the stocks, because of the buybacks that I talked about, perhaps too much I talked about it earlier, 
the combination of the easy fed and the buybacks allows some of the big major tech stocks for example social media in particular to go higher than they should have ever been even on bull market multiples and they're certainly not going to deliver the forward earnings that many were looking for but i hate people describing the whole thing just as being bearish on tech because it's more involved than tech you have to call it out for example certain semiconductor stocks cannot really be compared with meta or with alphabet they're in different businesses entirely and a couple of our favorites are in california i might mention and one that we've considered most controversial is in your backyard but that's a biotech stock that's a whole topic in itself <laughs> so given what you see in the charts the resistance around 4000 where do you see this going in the months ahead if you were to look at the charts are we going down from here is there an area that is support i think uh, michael hartnett at bank of america talked about if the s&p gets down to 3600 nibble if it gets down to 3300 bite and if it gets down to 3,000, gorge. If it goes down to 3,000, the problem is more significant and would probably have to be some sort of exogenous uh, geopolitical event uh, that crushes uh, the big cap stocks. The vulnerability in this market is the big caps. If you look at how the markets behaved in the last uh, couple of weeks, a lot of the smaller stocks, which were pummeled and beat up last year, stabilize and i don't just mean oil which is of course strong uh and and has been our favorite sector uh, our favorite stock is just backing off now from all-time highs but that's a uh silicon carbide which is a focus of mine uh in technology uh, it, it's the leading testing company in the field in fact it just made the investors daily top 50 list recently um but for us it's a quadruple so we're happy <laughs> but in any event Where's the S&P going? Uh, that, the reason I diverged there for a moment is because the market is not simply the S&P. The S&P got more overpriced. If you looked at the New York composite, it broke out to the upside above the equivalent downtrend line that everybody obviously is watching at 4,000. So that's why I thought the S&P would stick its nose up and then come down. Now the S&P is at 3,900. The real key will be the 3,800 level. Friday's expiration has not occurred yet at the time of this discussion. And I've been suggesting that it's gonna be a muddled mess until we get through this expiration. And there's a whole lot of open interest on the call side, um, what they call large gamma, which was uh, uh, suggesting that there's a whole lot of option writers who are usually the ones that make money, you know, who would love to see these, a lot of options at nearby strikes uh, um, vanish and become worthless and expire. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but uh, so what I'm basically saying is the coming week uh, may very well see a rebound and that rebound will be crucial. Do I think it will be successful? Probably not. And then we'll come down and we'll have a rather significant test of the 3,800 level. And if we break it, I can envision 3,200 because it'll be a panic. But I think there has to be something that happens and it won't be the debt ceiling uh, that because both that's bipartisan effort to prevent that problem. Uh, it could be uh, some significant expansion of the war. It could be a significant expansion again of COVID in China. 
which would reverse their opening up uh, process. You know, there's a few things, but absent all of that, I think the surprise is going to be that we go through several weeks of to and fro, uh, and we almost get an equilibrium between, shall we say, 3,800 and 4,000, and we don't resolve this, and we have a split decision uh, uh, among the technicians and the viewpoints, and then surprise, surprise, the Roaring Twenties kicks in, and we zoom higher, led by the very sector that so many people got negative on, including me for a while, and that's semiconductors. Well, that's uh, it's funny that you mentioned that, because our next buy, I've got several semiconductor stocks we're looking at, so we're 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 in agreement there. Have you focused on uh, by, on silicon carbide as the major fabrication plant companies are compelled to move in that direction? We're looking at that and a couple others. Yeah, it's notable that China does not have that. Uh, AEHR, which has the the multiple test system, which is why it's the hottest stock. Uh, they um, have their their lead customer is they've never announced who. Uh, initially 50 million bucks, but it was believed to be uh, on semiconductor. And now that they're working with Wolf Speed and ST Micro and Infineon, all of which are going into silicon carbide. And then uh, that complements another trend because that's better power efficiency, longer range when you're using silicon carbide and so on. But also there's small stocks that have been clobbered, you know, former either SPACs or not, like the only one we've looked at is solid power, which is batteries, but it's solid state batteries. And they have a deal with Ford and with BMW. Uh, And that's a nearest thing to a penny stock in price. It's not really small cap, but it's uh, a cheap stock. Uh, There's so many of those that have been clobbered, but I think that's where we're going. Silicon carbide um, and and, uh, solid state batteries and that is going to obsolete a lot of the batteries if they're not interchangeable that are in the existing EVs. And I would point out that I think it was the Tesla Model 3 was the first one to go to silicon carbide based inverters and so on. And now it's spread to others. So I think it's a change. Personally, I think we should have focused as a country more on hybrid, uh, uh, sort of like they're doing with the Corvette now, the E-Ray. Um, gasoline engines and electric uh, during what's going to be a generation to change this. I'm here in Florida. Uh, I'm an ex-Californian. And you guys have great charging networks around your state. Here in Florida, it's few and far between uh, and and get in line. And and, uh, therefore, EVs are not as popular as they are out there. Well, the problem with EVs, and I'm with you, I think we should be doing the hybrids because I, you know, we're going to outlaw gasoline engines 2035. And I hate to tell the governor here, EVs are expensive. You're not going to get your average Joe buying a $100,000 Tesla. So I think we need to go to hybrids. The other problem that we have, and we saw it last summer, we get power outs because we're shutting down our main sources of power. And the governor asked people not to charge their EVs. So, but listen, as we close, Jane, given what you see right now, as an investor, would you be on the sidelines, maybe put a little to work or maybe raise some cash here? What would you be doing? Well, we raised cash a year and a half ago, Jim. Uh, So we have been in the mode of putting cash back in, but not in the last uh, two weeks as the market is up. 
but rather what we call uh, what looked like lumps of coal on the Christmas tree, which would turn into diamonds if you press them enough. And by, I was being sarcastic, press them enough to where they're cheap. So we were buyers around the Christmas time. We were sellers into strength actually Wednesday morning, a little bit, but we're looking to put that back in. Uh, frankly, I put a little bit back in today, but I want to see what happens after the expiration. Generally speaking, I think one should be careful, not overly leveraged. Uh, I don't encourage normal investors to ever do that. Uh, I realize that you have a lot of leverage around. It almost is reminiscent of the 1920s when you had different pools and you had not ETFs, but variations of it in different concentrations of money and lots of different instruments for people to play. So you can have these wild swinging moves. And I think we're going to get some more of those uh, in the market. I think that yields are going to work a little bit higher, but not a lot. I think oil prices are going to be firm. And that's a problem for the inflation fight combined with, as you mentioned, the uh, uh, the spending for the infrastructure programs and so on. But generally speaking, contrary opinion and would be that we sort of shuffle around for the next three to five weeks. And then we have a spring rally that takes S&P to maybe 43 to 4,500, which is not common opinion. All right. Well, listen, Gene, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you do at the Inger Letter, tell them how they could do so. I do the Inger Letter daily briefing, Inger Letter, I-N-G-E-R-L-E-T-T-E-R.com. And what I will do if they subscribe to the normal quarterly subscription uh, and they send me an email that they heard about it on uh, your show, uh, I will include the intraday comments, which is our market cast service that normally we charge more than twice as much. Uh, I'll include it at no extra charge. So all they have to do is visit ingerletter.com and subscribe to the daily briefing and then send me an email in the feedback portion. All right. Well, listen, Gene, it's a pleasure having you on the program and hope to talk to you once again in the future. We, we're either in or, or close to the onset of a, of a recession. We've seen sell-off in stocks about 20% down on the S&P last year. And that was really revaluations, knocking down a price-earnings ratios with the Fed raising interest rates. And of course, it particularly damaging to growth stocks because if you look at their prices as a discounted value of future earnings, and a lot of those estimates of earnings are very big, but way in the distant future, the higher the interest rates, the less they're worth on a present value basis. The second half, and we think it'll be a total about a 40% decline. In other words, that was the first 20%. The second 20% is basically due to weak earnings uh, accompanying the recession. And we're beginning, we're beginning to see signs of that in terms of what's going on in the economy. But I think that's the second leg down. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. 
both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. The Davos crowd is gathering as they talk about climate change and accelerating the move away from fossil fuels. Yet, as we've seen this winter, we're having more power outs, whether it's on the East Coast or on the West Coast. Joining us on the program is Robert Bryce, author of Question of Power. And uh, Robert, I want to talk about, you recently wrote an article, you know, we want to move towards wind and solar, and yet more and more communities are voting against it because solar farms take a lot of space, as does wind. Let's talk about that and what that implies. If we're going to make this transition, how do we do it if more towns are voting against it? Well, this has been an issue. Thanks for asking about it, Jim. I have a piece in Real Clear Energy. It's also on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com. I've been documenting the rural backlash to wind and solar now for 13 years. You know, in 2010, I was contacted by a man named Charlie Porter who lived in King City, Missouri, and he raised and trained quarter horses, and he had wind turbines built right near his home. And he was making a lot of stink in the media about it. And I'd written something about this and he contacted me and I found out that he's only one of many people who are around the world who've had these projects built near them and they were protesting, they were fighting back. Well, that started me on this effort to document the growth in rural areas or the rejections of these projects in rural America. It's on my website, robertbrice.com, the Rural Rejection Database. So here's the punchline after that kind of long intro, Jim. Last year in the United States, 79 communities across the country rejected or restricted solar energy projects, 79. And it's all documented. You know, they're all from news clips or, you know, uh, publicly available sources. But it's indicative. This is, I make this point because the fundamental problem with wind and solar isn't want to, it isn't money, it's physics. The power density is too low. And then when you have low power density, it means you have to have a lot of land. And that's what we're seeing is from Maine to Hawaii, local communities saying, we don't want these projects. That hasn't made me very popular with the wind and solar lobbies. You know, they're attacking me in the media and they always do. But, you know, these are the facts. The facts are the facts. The numbers are the numbers. They're not my facts, not my numbers. They're the numbers. You know, the thing that really surprises me, we live in this technological age, Robert, where we have more and more devices that need electricity. So at night, you charge your iPad. You charge your iPhone, you charge your iWatch, you charge your laptop, whatever computers you're using. And then we want to add to that, we want to throw in EVs. You know, California, I love our state because we're mandating uh, fossil fuel. We're limiting natural gas plants. We already shut down one nuclear power plant. The other one will get shut down in 2030. At the same time, we're ruling out basically gasoline engines. I think it's by 2035. So the more EVs we have in this state, yet every time we get a heat wave or let's say a cold snap, they're telling us not to charge your EVs. How's this going to work when we're demanding more and more electricity for the devices we use? Well, Jim, if you want me to try and explain California politics, we're going to run out of time, my friend. (laughs) I mean, there's no explaining it. It's like California is America's equivalent of Germany. Just there's no explaining your policies. I'll respond by a couple of things. One is, where are the state that is now seeing just incredible demand for standby generators, of course, is California. And when you look at the permitting for these new standby generators all across California, the locals and businesses are installing them not by the hundreds, but by the thousands, because the grid is so unreliable in California. But that's only part of the story. The other part, of course, is the high cost. 
And if you've been paying attention, and just before Christmas, I was contacted by a manager of a public utility in California. And he said, hey, have you been looking at what's going on with power prices here? And I said, well, no, I haven't. And in many multiple days, or I guess it was actually a week or 10 days before Christmas, wholesale power prices in California were at or over $300 a megawatt hour. I mean, this is more than double or even triple or more the average price. Well, this is reflective of the states in the Western US overdependence on natural gas. And when you have that and natural gas prices are high and delivery of gas into the market is constrained, then you see these increases in power prices as well. So, you know, peak prices for people in the Los Angeles area, they're paying as much as 50 cents a kilowatt hour today. That's not in the future. Right now, on peak prices for electricity consumers in some in certain rate, there are different rate classes you can have in with LADWP, but over 50 cents a kilowatt hour. It's just a crazy number for people living in a state that is one of the overall one of the richest, but also has one of the highest poverty rates in America. Yeah, I just got hit with over a $700 natural gas bill. And Robert, we keep our thermostats down to 65 at night because we like to sleep when it's cooler. So we don't use a lot of heat other than, let's say, our stovetop. And now they're talking about getting rid of gas stovetops. So moving everything to electric stovetops, which means there's going to be even greater demand for electricity in a grid that is becoming more destabilized. I mean, this is just absolutely nuts. Well, say that again, Jim, because I'd seen these headlines. Are you in the SoCal gas service area, San Diego Gas and Electric? Yeah. I mean, I literally, we keep our heat roughly about 68 during the day, 68 to 69. And then at night, we turn the thermostat down to 65 because I like sleeping in cooler weather. And I just got hit with a $700 bill. For one month? For one month. Man alive. You know, I've heard about this, and but the, you're the first I've heard, you know, that actual number. But see, this is part of the problem. When you block pipelines, when you block access to the hydrocarbons that your whole economy is dependent on, when you have times of stress and that I think this tracks back to a Kinder Morgan pipeline I think they've had a problem with, or there was an explosion on one pipeline. And so gas prices throughout for customers throughout California, and you see these higher prices even in parts of Arizona and Nevada as well. But $700 for a single month, that's crazy town. Oh, and that's not using much. So I'd hate to see if you know we kept our thermostats at 71 or 72, what it would be. And you're in San Diego, is that right, Jim? Yeah, I'm in San Diego. You know, it's hardly Bismarck or Duluth. I mean, or or Fargo, North Dakota. I know. (laughs) It's absolutely crazy. I want to move on to another topic, and that is it's not just that we're seeing, you know, this push for wind and solar, and we're shutting down, I think, by 2030. I think our utilities are going to have to get rid of their nat gas plants. I don't understand that because one of the reasons we've had lower carbon emissions in the United States has been the proliferation of natural gas plants, which really come into play with peak load and electricity. I know. There seems to be New York and California are kind of traveling similar paths here where they're saying, we're going to do all this, but they don't have any kind of practical plan for how to achieve it. I think it was the what do they call it? The CLCPA, I think, the Community Leadership and Climate Protection Act, something like this in New York. Well, their agency that was working on this roadmap, they put out this document that has a lot of, well, we have to kind of figure this out. I mean, it's full of these vague ideas about how we're going to get to zero carbon. But remember, New York, like California, it's almost impossible to build large-scale solar and wind because of local opposition. 
There are no big wind projects that are pending in California, zero. And in New York, they're so unpopular that the bureaucrats in Albany are bigfooting the local communities to effectively try to override local zoning. So, you know, these ideas, oh, we'll shut down all of our hydrocarbon networks and systems, and we're going to go to something else. But there is no reasonable plan for what that something else looks like. It's incredibly nice. I don't know, short-sighted. The words fail me, Jim. I'm paid to put things, get the right adjectives, but it's such a myopia around the importance of our energy and power networks that I think it's deeply dangerous, but I fear some heavy prices are going to be paid because of this lack of foresight and lack of understanding of the criticality of these networks. You know, and it's also surprising too, you know, not only have we not upgraded the grid, which needs to be upgraded, especially now with the uses that we have with internet, computers, and as I mentioned, all the electrical devices. And yet they are turning to a situation and forcing people to even use more electricity. For example, if we get rid of natural gas stove types, I think the administration was going to go there and they got so much pushback, they've kind of withdrawn, except for the governor of New York wants to go ahead with it. So we're demanding more electricity use by the devices and the way we heat our homes, our water heaters, like they want to get rid of natural gas completely in California, which is just absolutely stupid. But anyway, let's talk about, it's not just here though, Robert, we're seeing it also in Europe. Europe is just an energy mess. Oh my gosh. Well, I'll just add one quick point, Jim, if you don't mind on the natural gas part of that, which is from a climate standpoint, it's much more efficient to use natural gas directly than to burn it in a power plant and then use the electricity derived from the gas. And I think that that's a key point that's being overlooked here. I'll also add just one other point, which is that direct use of natural gas, it's three and a half times cheaper than using electricity. That's data from the Department of Energy they published in the Federal Register early last year. So, you know, it just makes sense to use gas directly in the home. It's cheaper and more efficient and better for the climate. But those points are not getting the kind of play that they need. But yes, Europe, oh my gosh, total disaster. It's, you know, how do you handicap which country's in worse shape? Now, they've been lucky so far in that it's been a warm winter, and so their gas demand has been lower, and so they've been able to refill a lot of their gas storage. In fact, I just saw a headline on that just a few minutes ago. But I think it's worth reminding, remembering what's happening in Germany, where they're expanding in the state of North Rhine-Westphalia. They're expanding. This is the one of the stories from Germany that's just, you can't make it up, Jim, which is, they're expanding the Garsweiler lignite mine. They're going to bulldoze a nearby village. They're taking down a wind project in order to expand this lignite mine so that they have enough electricity. And then in April, they're going to close down three more nuclear plants. I mean, it's just like, you can't make this up. What You're going to be a climate leader while you're closing your nuclear plants and expanding lignite plants. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, I mean, if you follow the logic of all of this, you know, they keep talking about this green economy, this transition to green energy. In that transition, there is no plan to it. There is no plan B if this doesn't work. And that's the thing that has to be concerning, whether you're a manufacturer doing business or just a simple homeowner trying to heat your home. Well, and further, I think a critical point here is that these alt energy, I don't call them green energy technologies anymore. They're alt energy, alternative energy technologies, because I don't think they are green, in fact, because of the material intensity of all these different types of, you know, like offshore wind energy being the obvious example. It's something like 13, it requires 13 times more raw materials than a natural gas plant. But the International Energy Agency just put out an amazing report just last week talking about 
this issue of energy technologies and who are the dominant players in alternative energy manufacturing. And it's all China, whether it's photovoltaic cells, whether it's blades for wind turbines, whether electric cars, batteries, anodes, cathodes. China has a lock hold on almost a complete monopoly on many of those, and in particular on the production of rare earth elements and the magnets that are used in EVs and in wind turbines, the neodymium iron boron magnets. So there is a national security aspect here as well, Jim, that is not getting the kind of play that it needs or deserves rather. And in some ways, there's just kind of this blithe ignorance of the fact that we're handing our supply chains over to China. I'm not bashing China, but this is an important issue here, and it's not being discussed at all. You know, the other thing, it's not just the fact that we're shutting down nat gas plants, nuclear power plants. You've got local towns that are vetoing wind farms, solar farms. At the same time that we're doing that, we're also stopping mining. I mean, they've stopped a mine in Minnesota. They stopped one in Maine. They've stopped them elsewhere. So that's the thing that most people don't realize. This so-called alt energy takes raw materials. It takes mining. You have to have cobalt, lithium, nickel for batteries. You have to have silver for solar. And to do that, you also need copper, which means you have to mine to get this stuff. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I had on my podcast, the Power Hungry Podcast, a few weeks ago. I had Simon Michaud, and he's with the Finnish Geological Survey, and he's done this remarkable report. It's a thousand pages. But the punchline is, for what he calculates the first generation of alt-energy technology to move away from hydrocarbons, just for that first generation, we would need to produce an amount of copper equal to 180 years of current production. I mean, these are just, I mean, cartoonish kind of numbers, that there's just no way to produce the volume of commodities that are needed to make this so-called energy transition. We just physically can't do it. And I think the other key point, Jim, and it's one that Michaud made that I hadn't thought about, which is that not only is the scale of the mining that is required staggering, he points out that the quality of the ores that we're using now are declining, right? So these new mines, there are some of these mines are, you know, have good deposits. In fact, the Swedes discovered a new rare earth element deposit and just made an announcement last week about it. And it's a high quality deposit. But when you talk about copper and some of these other metals, strategic metals, strategic minerals, the ore quality is declining. Well, if you have declining ore quality, that means you have to pull more ore out of the ground, right? So there's a physical mass problem there. But then you have another mass problem when you have to convert that ore into the finished raw commodity, which means you have to process more, which means that's more energy intensive. So all across that value chain, you're seeing an increase in energy intensity. So the punchline here is that we're facing a very real limit you know, I'm bullish on the future. I'm extremely bullish on better living standards for everyone around the world, but we are facing very clear constraints on the system as a system. You know, Robert, when do you see a backlash? I mean, you saw the number of deaths with the shutdown of power in the winter storms in New York. We saw last winter, we saw the problems in Texas. And last summer, we saw the problems here in California and elsewhere. When do people finally just get fed up and say and demand a change? Because right now, it seems like the more this doesn't work, the more politicians double down. I'll just say, well, it's kind of a broad statement what you said there, Jim. And I see what you're saying, you know, that the people aren't paying attention. I think my response would be we're seeing that in some places, right? We're seeing local communities like in Ohio, where you've seen more than 40 townships ban wind or solar or both over the last year. 
But we haven't seen the kind of broader, I think, societal backlash. And we're seeing it in some states. There are some states that are passing legislatures saying you cannot ban natural gas, Texas being one of them, right? Where the legislatures are being proactive and saying, no, you cannot pass rules that limit the access to certain energy commodities. So I think, you know, when you talk about this backlash, when are people going to wise up? I think it's happening, but it's happening in a very local manner, I guess I would reply that I think that it's certain states, certain policymakers, certain legislatures are saying, this is what we want. But the counter to that is that you're also seeing at certain city levels, town levels, like in Massachusetts, where you have climate activists going to towns like Cambridge, Massachusetts, well, you want to ban natural gas and future use of, oh, yes, we do. And so they're going to do, and they're going to allow that to happen in Massachusetts for about 10 cities, I guess, something like that. So there's a push-pull on all of this, but what I see is it's happening very regionally and not on a national basis. When do we get to a point, do you think, is it enough power-outs, enough brownouts? Like I say, you know, I watch Genrac commercials on TV now where you're seeing, in fact, I'm taking a look at that. My house is solar-powered, but it doesn't do me any good, Robert. When they shut the grid down, my solar panels are tied to the grid. The other thing is they're reneging on the credits that you build up during the months when you don't use it. So here they are trying to create incentives for you to go green, whether it's solar or get an EV, but then they're taking away the benefits of it at the same time. Yes. And California is an example of this. You know, I'll just make a quick point on the Generac. So a lot of people are buying them. And if you bought Generac stock, you know, two years ago or three years ago, good for you, because I haven't checked it lately, but it's what been doubled, tripled, quadrupled. It was up 4X, something like that the last time I checked. But when you say this, I'm thinking, Jim, okay, so will you get a Generac and you live in San Diego and then everyone else on your block has a Generac and you have a power outage. Is there going to be enough gas in that gas pipeline for all of you to run your own power plant? I doubt it. So the lack of understanding, I think, overall among policymakers about the interconnectedness of all these grids. And I think this is clearly one of the issues that still has to be resolved in Texas, but also moreover, the US as a whole, because I'm pro-natural gas, I'm pro-nuclear. But what we've seen overall in the United States is this push to retire coal and rely more on natural gas. Well, that's great. you know. And we have seen some CO2 emissions reductions, but now we've made the grid too reliant on natural gas. And when you see price spikes and instability, that becomes a problem. And who pays? The consumer. It's absolutely amazing when you take a look at all of this taking place. In fact, one of the things I'm looking at, the last time we had a power out, Robert, I was sitting on my back porch. It was evening. And the guy across the street, uh, he has solar panels. His lights were on. Mine were off. He has Tesla batteries. And there you go. See, and this is part of the class issue here. And I don't know you, Jim, very well, but you know, you seem like you're very fairly prosperous. You can afford a Generac. Well, what about the barista at Starbucks who's living in an apartment or a rental house? Not only can they not afford a Generac, they have no incentive to buy one because they don't own their home. They're not going to be using solar panels because they're, again, they don't own the home. So there is a very clear class issue here. And what I see and what I motivate some of my work, and a lot of my work is motivated, I'll be clear with you, by anger at what I see, is that a lot of this climate policy is just regressive, whether it's prohibiting the sale of new internal combustion vehicles in California. Well, how does that help the bricklayer or the carpenter? They can't afford a Tesla. They don't want a Tesla. They've got to haul bricks. They have to haul cement. How does that help them? It doesn't. It hurts them. What about these natural gas bans? Why are we prohibiting their access to lower cost in-house in energy? Well, it's regressive taxation. So 
overall, when you look at this and you think about it, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it, in many ways, a lot of these climate policies are just simply a war on the poor. You know, the other thing that strikes me too, instead of building EVs, which don't work very well in cold climates like Montana or North Dakota, we should be building hybrids. So that way, you know, that works in any kind of weather. If your battery runs down or it's cold weather, then the gasoline kicks in. Well, I completely agree. I wouldn't buy any vehicle with a plug. I think that doesn't make any sense. But hybrids, though, I'm fully in favor. I think they make a lot of sense. Now, particularly for, you know, in-city driving, they make a lot of sense. And they're far less material intensive because they're not using batteries that are as big as those in electric vehicles. And I'm just looking, in fact, this morning before we got online here at the latest IEA report, and again, points out the material intensity of these alt-energy technologies is just off the charts. And there isn't enough steel, copper, aluminum, neodymium, praseodymium, dysprosium, tellurium, all of these things. There simply isn't enough to make this wholesale change away from hydrocarbons. It just won't work. But I fear, and I think what's happening is we're just seeing a lot of money that's going to be wasted in pursuit of this bad policy. And I think wasted is the right word, but there's a lot of money, a lot of momentum behind it. And these legacy media outlets are all in on this claims and very hard to disabuse them of it. Well, as we close, Robert, tell our listeners, you produced a documentary that you can see on iTunes and Prime Video Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, and then also your book, A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. Yes. Well, thank you. I'm producing a lot of content lately, Jim. Yes, those are available. Juice, in fact, is now available on YouTube for free. So you can look for it there. It's on Gravitas Ventures, their channel on YouTube. I'm also on Substack. I've just launched on Substack in the last few weeks, robertbryce.substack.com. My book is A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. You don't have to read it, ladies and gentlemen. You just have to buy it. (laughs) But I'm having great fun, Jim. You know, I love these issues. I have a purpose in my life to write and talk about and making another film called Burning Down the Grid, another documentary. I'm passionate about these issues because these energy and power, these are the key drivers of civilization. And we risk big declines in human standards of living if we get this wrong. And I fear so far, we're seeing a lot of bad policy being made here in the US. And a lot of it is mimicking what we see in Europe. And they drove themselves into the ditch. And we need to not do that. We need to stay out of the ditch. But I'll stop there. You know, me on my soapbox. But yes, robertbryce.substack.com. Renewable Rejection Database is on my website, robertbryce.com. I'm omnipresent. You'll find me on the Google. Well, Robert, keep up the good work because we need voices like yours out there. I just interviewed Alex Epstein on his book, Fossil Future. And it's just amazing if you take a look at this technological world that we live in today was made possible with fossil fuels because fossil fuels gave us machines and with machines, we can make things. Robert, thanks so much for joining us on the program. All the best. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks. Well, news headlines came out this week discussing how the U.S. hit another debt ceiling, prompting the U.S. Treasury to take extraordinary measures to give lawmakers another six months or so to try to stave off default and disaster. We've been here before. We've heard this story. This is not the first time we've been in this position. So we're going to take a look at this in a little bit more depth, looking at the U.S. Treasury market, the amount of debt that is coming due. With our guest today, Chris Paplava, the Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. And Chris, so you did a, a deep dive into U.S. debt in this week's weekly investment meeting, which we posted on YouTube and our website with a series of different charts. 
But let's start off just in terms of what you are seeing on the U.S. debt side of things. Well, a couple of things I wanted to highlight. You know, let's just assume for now that we're not in a recession. You know, maybe there's one that we're just slipping into one or there's one, you know, a few months off on the horizon. But, you know, we're really going to be entering a possible recession in a really precarious position. And what I mean by that is currently right now, we've got about a, a, a budget deficit of about 5.5% of GDP. And really, the, as of right now, the only time it's been worse than this was during the great financial crisis of 2007 through 2009 and the COVID recession. So, you know, prior to those, I mean, the current level right now is, uh, you know, we didn't even get this low during the 90, 91 recession or even the, you know, the uh, late 1980 recessions, we weren't this low. So, you know, if we have a recession, you know, we're obviously going to have a much larger budget deficit because typically uh, tax receipts fall during a recession, which means that the government has to issue even more debt to make up that shortfall between their income tax receipts and, and then their outlays. So that's a concern that I have. And one of the charts uh, I showed in that presentation, Chris, was looking at the conference board's LEI along with the budget deficit, and they do tend to move together in the same direction. And so with the conference board LEI already rolling over here, it does you know, warn and paint the uh, picture that we are going to be slipping in recession, which obviously means bad news for the U.S. Treasury, which means lower tax receipts and a greater amount of debt issuance. And that, to me, could be a problem given we have a lot of debt coming due and already part of the issue that the U.S. Treasury is facing is we're going to be annualizing pretty soon here, I believe, a trillion dollars spent in terms of debt servicing payments for the U.S. Treasury. So uh, one of the things that we looked at was how much debt the U.S. has outstanding and how much of that is coming due this year. So as of right now, we're looking at about roughly a third of U.S. debt is coming due this year. The largest amounts will be in the first four months of this year. Uh, The first four months, we will see over $750 billion mature each month. The uh, biggest will be in February, north of $1.2 trillion just in the month alone. So the U.S. government is going to have to uh, basically meet those redemptions as those bonds mature, pay investors, and then likely issue new debt to retire the, the old debt. And if we see a, uh, a real weakening economy and tax receipts fall, they're going to have to issue even more debt on top of that to not only retire older debt, but also to make up the shortfall. So we could see a huge supply of debt uh, coming due this year. And obviously with the Fed stepping away from that market and selling treasuries or at least allowing them to roll off the balance sheet, we really don't see a sizable demand as of right now for treasuries, whether it be the Fed or from foreign buyers or even commercial banks, which are seeing deposits decline, which then means that their assets are declining as well. So some of the major buyers have been absent last year. I don't really see that turning around. So the concern is if supply really picks up for treasuries at a time in which there really isn't a strong amount of demand, that could push yields higher. Right. And that is the main message that we're getting across for potential turbulence this year. Because as you pointed out, foreigners are stepping away. The Fed is reducing their purchases as they're undergoing quantitative tightening, reducing their balance sheet. And then at the same time, we have, as you pointed out, a third of U.S. debt coming due just in these first four months. So that means with all the supply, 
less buyers out there, that is very likely to put upward pressure on rates, which would not be good for the market. That's correct, Chris. And, you know, this is already a little bit problematic. When you look at overall U.S. Treasury liquidity, it's, you know, essentially at one of the worst positions it's been in the last decade outside of the uh, March 2020 COVID panic. So, you know, liquidity remains poor and a problem for the U.S. Treasury market. And, you know, part of it, I think we could see that get even worse is when you look at foreign bond yields, they're really starting to pick up. Um, so Japanese, you know, um, the Bank of Japan cap, raised the cap on their 10-year yield from a quarter point to half a point. Uh, other maturities uh, beyond 10 years for Japanese debt are already rising pretty significantly. We're seeing European yields rise. And so as European and foreign yields rise relative to U.S. yields, it makes U.S. debt less and less attractive, particularly if our currency is weakening. So one of the things I highlight is the yield differential between U.S. and Japanese bond yields and how that correlates with currency movements. So if we continue to see foreign bond yields move up at a faster pace in the U.S., that could even further exacerbate the issue of foreigners uh, stepping away from U.S. debt in terms of favoring their own uh, country's debt. Now, the last time that we hit the debt ceiling and it was raised was in 2011. And at that point in time, that also rattled the markets. Uh, stock prices were affected by that. And there were a number of uncertainties that, that caused, not to mention the fact that U.S. Treasury debt was, for the first time ever, downgraded from its AAA status down to AA. That was a major event, but that was in 2011. And although there was some stock market turbulence, um, we did recover from those levels. In this instance, could we be looking at something different, Chris? Because again, going back to this point, we have a third of U.S. debt outstanding all coming due in this first four months. There's a lot of political brickmanship, not much willingness to negotiate on each side of the party line. And on top of that, we have foreigners stepping away at this point as well as the Fed is undergoing quantitative tightening. It seems that the situation is a bit more dire, uh, if you want to put it that way, than what we saw in 2011. I'm just wondering if this could be indeed one of the catalysts that tips the U.S. into recession. That's certainly possible if we see uh, U.S. Treasury yields actually rise and go even higher, uh, given these issues of you know geopolitical uncertainty in the U.S., as well as some uh, potential supply and demand mismatch. Uh, that definitely is a huge risk. Uh, you know, case in point, that we're seeing this in real time was an article that came out in Bloomberg last month where Nippon Life weighs more Japan bond purchases as BOJ lifts yields. So Nippon Life is one of the largest pension funds in Japan, is already showing they're considering repatriating some of their U.S. investments back into Japan in terms of the um, uh, Japan's debt. And, you know, it's one thing that was really different, and I, I can't um, underscore this enough. But what we saw last year was exceptionally atypical in terms of how bonds perform. And in my opinion, I think this has to do with a really sizable mismatch between supply and demand for U.S. Treasuries to likes that we have not seen before. Um, a, a case in point, one of the studies I ran was looking at since 1970s, where we have you know long-term returns for U.S. Treasuries, 
I was looking at the six-month change in the CPI and how long-term bonds performed over the same six-month period. And what I was looking for were uh, periods in which over six months, the CPI rate or consumer price index fell from uh, roughly about 2.6 percentage points. So, you know, going from, let's say, 10.6 to 8.6. And I did that looking at the most recent CPI reading for December. So basically looking at between June of last year and December, the CPI fell by around 2.6 percentage points. And I wanted to see how long-term treasuries performed over that same period. And so we had a pretty good sample size. I believe there was around 21 times since 1970 where we saw over a six-month period that the CPI index fell by at least 2.6 percentage points. And of those instances, only four of them showed negative bond returns. The bulk of them showed actually double-digit performance returns. Um, a couple examples where we actually had negative bond performance, uh, June of 81, that the preceding six months over that period, long-term bonds fell about 3.3%. And also in uh, later in uh, 1981, we saw another six-month period where bonds fell about 3%. So outside of 1981, the only other year uh, that we saw this was 1975, where long-term treasuries fell by half a percent when we saw the CPI fall, uh, at least 2.6 percentage points. Now, outside of those three instances, last year was the fourth time that we've seen that happen. And as I mentioned before, in 81, long-term bonds fell about 3%, more or less were flat in 1975. But over the uh, last final six months of 22, long-term treasuries were down 10%. That was the worst decline in long-term bonds when we've seen the CPI or inflation rate fall of that magnitude. So that definitely kind of stood out like a sore thumb and was definitely different than what we had historically seen. And one thing I did not include in this week's presentation, but I, I did want to touch upon, was I wanted to look at how bonds performed, not just when inflation was falling, but also when the economy was slowing. Typically, bonds follow the economy. So when the economy is overheating, inflation tends to be high, uh, to cool that, the Fed is usually raising interest rates, and that then pressures bonds. And in the same turn, when the economy is rolling over, typically inflationary pressures are easing. The Fed may be even pausing or lowering interest rates, and bonds tend to do quite well. So what I was looking at were over a trailing two-year period, it, maximum drawdowns in the ISM of at least 15 points. So, for example, the ISM going from 50 to 35 or, uh, you know, so that those uh, kinds of declines of that magnitude. We've had nine instances since the 1970s where the ISM fell by at least 15 points. And I wanted to see how the long-term treasury performed during that, uh, from that peak to trough in the ISM. And what I found is on average, excluding last year, long-term treasuries rallied 23% on average, when we see the ISM fall by at least 15 uh, points over a trailing two-year period. And when we look at last year, well, let me kind of get into some of the numbers. So, uh, for example, from uh, the little middle part of 2018 to the um, you know middle of 2020, the ISM fell nearly 20 points, and long-term bonds were up 43%. And in 2007 to December of 2008, ISM fell dramatically 
long-term bonds were up 33%. And then also from 99 to 2001, long-term bonds were up 32%. So we're seeing pretty sizable moves in long-term treasuries when we see pretty big declines in the ISM. Well, last year, we saw the ISM peak in March of 21 at 63.7. And if we look at the most recent data, which we have for December, the ISM was at 48.4. So we met that 15-point drawdown criteria. Over that time period, long-term treasuries posted their first decline ever. As I mentioned, usually they rally by double digits. But over that time period, long-term treasuries were down 22% rather than being up roughly 23%, which was the average return. So that clearly stands out like a sore thumb. And another statistic I heard recently, Chris, that I wanted to verify, which to me it almost seemed impossible, but um, I did verify the data and it was accurate. And the analyst was saying that when you look at um, bear markets in the S&P 500, so bear market being defined as a 20% or more decline, that typically when stocks decline in a recessionary bear market or just a you know, quick bear market like the 87 crash, typically long-term treasuries have positive returns. And the, the data that I at least have access to only goes back to the 70s for uh, long-term U.S. Treasury returns. So I looked at 1970 all the way to the present to see if that was the case. So you know, I looked at the 73-74 bear market where the S&P was down 45%. The 8082 bear market where the S&P was down 24, the 87 crash where the market was down 30%, the 2000 tech bubble where the market fell 43, the great financial crisis of 0709 where the S&P was down 53%, and then that mini bear market that we saw occur in uh, 2020, which was short. And I'm looking at a monthly basis because you know the market bottomed in March of 2020. I believe it was March 23rd and rallied very strongly. But from looking only at monthly data, it did meet that criteria of down 20%. And even looking at the most recent period of uh, December 21 to March of 22, the S&P was down 25%. So, you know, looking at all those different bear markets, the average decline was 34%. So pretty sizable decline. When we look at how the long-term treasury performed during those bear markets, when we look um, outside of last year, on average the long-term treasury was up 8%. The only decline that I found was in that 73-74 period where the market was down 45% and long-term treasuries were down 1%. So when you look at how bonds relative to stocks performed, over that period, bonds outperformed stocks by 44%. In 1980 to 82, they were up 16%, outperforming stocks by 40% again. And the 87 crash, they were up three, which meant they outperformed stocks by 33%. In the tech bubble, long-term bonds were up 31%. And over that time period, they beat stocks by 74% performance margin. And in 0709, they were up 17%, which meant that they outperformed stocks by 69% over that period. And then also in uh, 2019 to 2020, they were up double digits at 21% return outperforming stocks by 41. So when we look outside of last year, we find that on average, long-term bonds beat stocks by 42% during bear markets. And prior to last year, the only negative return was a small return, a negative return of negative 1% in the 73-74 decline. 
Now let's look at what happened last year. From December 21 to September of 22, the S&P was down 25%. The bond market, long-term treasuries, was down 29%. That marked the first time since the 1970s. We're talking 50 years of history where it was the first time over that period where bonds actually did worse than stocks. Clearly, and this is what I tried to highlight this year, I'm sorry, in uh, this week in the investment meeting video, was that something fundamentally has changed in the sense of how long-term bonds typically behave historically when stocks are in a bear market, when the economy is rolling over as measured by the ISA manufacturing index, or as measured by a decline in inflation. We did not see that last year. Even comparing into the 1970s, which were another inflationary period of rising interest rates. Last year really stood out like a sore thumb. And I believe, Chris, the reason for that is a fundamental shift between the supply and demand for U.S. Treasuries that is impacting the returns for long-term bonds. So, Chris, as we close, just to reiterate, we've been bearish on the general market outlook since late 2021 and generally holding to a defensive posture in client accounts at Financial Sense Wealth Management over that time, largely due to our models raising a large number of sell signals at the 2021 peak. We've discussed that a number of different times and have continued to reiterate the bearish view in light of declining liquidity and the continual drop in leading economic indicators, which is what we see today as well. What is our current posture and what are we generally doing in client accounts? We still have a um, underweight towards the stock market relative to our benchmarks. We are still defensive. And the reason for that, as you mentioned, Chris, the liquidity picture really hasn't improved. Uh, you know, the one thing that I you know, have noticed over at least the last six months is everyone seems to be fixated on the Fed's tightening cycle in terms of its interest rate policy. And everyone's looking for that Fed pivot where the Fed finally pauses and the market is betting the Fed will be cutting interest rates in the back half of this year. What we're really not seeing uh, commented by either analysts or the Federal Reserve at its press conferences is what it's doing with its balance sheet. So let's think about this. If the Fed stops raising interest rates, let's just assume their last rate hike is in March. They stop raising interest rates, but they continue to shrink their balance sheet by nearly $100 billion a month. That's still tightening. That's only a pivot in, in their interest rate policy, but that's not a pivot in terms of their balance sheet policy. So the Fed's still tightening. So that to us um, gives a, a really negative backdrop for liquidity for the markets. And usually as liquidity rises, it tends to drive valuations higher, price multiples higher. And when liquidity declines and recedes, we typically see valuations contract. So for us, you know, that's a big negative. And when we look at the economy, and also the prospect for corporate earnings and retail sales, we're seeing an economy that continues to slow with really no sign of a turnaround. Housing is still suffering from elevated interest rates. We're seeing uh, existing and new home sales decline. We're seeing housing starts over you know, the last year have really declined uh, precipitously. So we really don't see a fundamental shift, whether in market liquidity or in the economic fundamentals to warrant a move back towards neutral or even in an aggressive stance. But uh, one thing we do anticipate is that the Fed 
which kind of led the way towards tackling inflation by raising interest rates compared to our developed peers like Europe, uh, the UK, or Japan, we, you know, our belief is that they were kind of the first in. They're going to be the first out in terms of moving towards the sidelines. While we may see our counterparts in Europe and England and in Japan continuing to raise interest rates, thereby really uh, decreasing that spread in terms of elevated interest rates in the U.S. versus our peers. And I think that could see a pretty significant drop in the dollar. Now, we've already seen a drop in the dollar over the last month or so, uh, and it's oversold and is due for a rally. But I don't think we've found the bottom yet. I think the dollar is going to continue to weaken this year. So one of our focuses, Chris, is not just on our overall asset allocation being under overweight stocks, but also even our geographic location of our investments for clients. And one of the things that we are doing is shifting away from a U.S.-centric pro-dollar stance more towards anti-dollar investments that tend to do well with the weak dollar. So that's a noticeable shift that we've been doing over the last month and continue and expect to do so later this year. Well, Chris, I look forward to watching some of these future weekly investment videos where I know you cover a lot of this information, including positioning around anti-dollar plays, like you said. So lots of great information that you're making available to our listeners and to the wider investment public. So always appreciate you coming on and giving us an update. And we look forward to speaking with you in another two weeks. I look forward to it as well. Thanks, Chris, for having me. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says Contact Us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, Go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.